drafted basically because of the fact he had some issues with those knees. They line up with four tight ends, and that time it's kind of getting slung back. Nope. But he did cross the plane of the goal line. Line judge comes in and so signals a touchdown to his four tight ends. And it doesn't even include Jason Witten if they go. You can just feel the passion and intensity and Al Michaels' voice as number three hands the ball to Philip Tanier for a one-yard touchdown in the Hall of Fame game. The first touchdown of football in 2013. It was thrilling. Philip Tanner was an early pick in my fantasy preseason league. It's interesting how I was watching Twitter as the game was going on, which I watched for probably ten minutes oh, yeah. until Miss Caster got out of the shower and we started watching Big Brother. Okay. But um, it was interesting how, you know, the Dolphins have a fumble on the first play, and it's like, all right, Miller, he's dropping. He's dropping down boards, you know. And people are kidding. But it's just like the overreaction right, from people right, yeah. to preseason in terms of fantasy and other things is incredible. Welcome to the Sportscaster Season 3, uh, episode number 20. It's August 6th, 2013. Big, big week for the sportscasters this week. Let's lay it out here for you. Today, we have the first of a two-episode week. We will have Adam Lazarus. He is a freelance football writer who has written for Bleacher Report, ESPN The Magazine. He's also written three books, including our book club book of the month from about last year at this time, which was a Steve Young, Joe Montana book, which I thought was really good. And he also wrote a book about Super Bowl 25, and we're going to talk to him. He lives in Atlanta now. We're going to talk to him about what's going on with the Falcons. We're going to talk to him about the Braves for a second, talk to him about his books. One's coming out on paperback. Uh, one is pretty relevant this week with Bill Parcells going into the Hall of Fame. So talk a little bit about Super Bowl 25, so Bill's fans out there will be able oh, to enjoy yeah, that. Great. Also today, Patrick Burns, first time on the Sportscasters. He is a Bristol Metrics reporter for Deadspin.com, which is a made-up word, of course, <laughs> uh, which means basically he is a he analyzes statistics that he researches based on things that air on ESPN, okay, like the twenty-three thousand minutes of SportsCenter that he watched and charted. The poor guy. Can you imagine twenty-three thousand minutes of his life down the toilet? 21,000 of those had to be Tim Tebow and Mante Teo coverage. And you'll be amazed at some of the statistics that he found out. Who do you think was the most mentioned athlete in those, in those 23? This is throughout all of 2012. 2012. 2,000 or so mentions. Hmm. Tiger Woods? Nope. I'm probably getting the years wrong. Teo would have been this year. Uh... It's it's one you probably shouldn't overthink. Uh, you know, I mean, he's arguably Aaron Rodgers. Uh, no, easier oh, than LeBron that. James. LeBron James. Okay, yep. okay. LeBron James was number one. What else? What do you think the most talked about sport was? Again, okay, pretty easy. Yes, yeah. the NFL. The NFL. What do you think the the team with the most 
in the he calls it the big six sports, so the four that we think of in two college football and baseball. Uh, which basketball team do you think was mentioned the most? The Heat. Right. Baseball team. The Yankees. Yeah. Football team. Hmm. Uh, the Redskins? Giants. Giants. Okay. Yeah. So it's all kinds of things like this. Uh, the most interesting thing is when you see the percentages of, of what each sport is covered. Right. Hockey's covered 2.7% of the time, or 459 of the 23,000 minutes. Now he needs to go back to the last year of NHL Tonight and see if they made it. I don't know. I'll, I'm not sure what questions you have lined up for him, but do you ask if, if he thinks that was a conscious effort by them? We to... do talk about what sports that ESPN has money invested, how those sports are reflected oh, as opposed okay. to ones that aren't. Uh, so we got those two guys on the show today. We're also going to do three things, a book club update, and we're also going to close things out with one last thing. But that won't be it from us, us this week. Sometime Thursday night, maybe Friday morning, we're going to be putting out a second podcast for the week, Season 3, Episode 21. And it will feature an interview with Stuart Mandel from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com, to talk more about the latest in a series of Johnny Manziel, Johnny Football controversies. This one is putting his eligibility at risk, as I'm sure all of you have heard at SportsCenter. And also, something we're really excited and proud of, Rich Eisen yep. is going to join us on the podcast. So two big shows this week. Let's get the first one started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, my instinct told me, let's just ignore this. And then my brain told me, well, we can't ignore it. We have to spend a few minutes on it, and that is the Biogenesis hammer came down yesterday. The most players suspended at one time since the White, or the uh, Black Sox scandal in wow. 1900 or whatever year that right, was. Right. And obviously, the interesting thing about it is we had Braun suspended a, a bit ago. Right. And that was based on a settlement he made with 50 baseball. 50-some-odd games or something? Yeah, basically he rest took the, the rest season. of the year, right. whatever that added on to. Then we had 12 guys suspended who all accepted their 50-game drug violation suspensions. They're gone. Players like Nelson Cruz, Johnny Peralta, some big names, some all-stars in there. Guys right. that are done for the next 50 games. And there's only a handful more than that left in this season, but they'll be back for the... For the tail end and playoffs if their teams are involved in that. And then we have the real part of the story, which is Alex Rodriguez, who was suspended for not only what's left of this year, but is what's left all of next year. So over 100 games suspension. He's got 50 games of that suspension as a drug violation. The rest is for, I guess, an obstruction of the investigation done by Major League Baseball. Uh, the power of the commissioner, he, la he lands, uh, gives this big punishment to A-Rod. And A-Rod, of course, is appealing, which means on the day he was suspended, he was leading off, or batting fourth and playing third base for the Yankees in Chicago last night, where he went one for four in a 7 nothing Yankees loss. Your right. thoughts? Um, I mentioned Mike Shope a lot. He's been on the podcast before. He's a local guy, and I like, I like him because he's very analytical. Um, in this case, he's also a big baseball guy, though, too, so I'm he not sure where he's at with this necessarily. 
his thought is that these suspensions and the hard line that baseball is taking in that maybe we haven't heard as many of these stories lately show that baseball is improving or cracking down on this stuff. My thought about that is if that is the case, uh, why settle with these guys? Especially a guy like Braun and A-Rod. Why not give A-Rod the lifetime ban? I think part of it is because that lifetime ban would have never held up in an arbitrator because he has no other... There's rules in the collective bargaining agreement set up for how steroid suspensions are to be structured. And first-time offense is not a lifetime ban. Sure, A-Rod sort of admitted that he had done it in the past, but that's not a failed drug test. Okay. That's basically hearsay from an era when this wasn't tested. That was my other question is, in this case, um, I bring up Shope saying that their shows are cracking down. These guys weren't. These guys didn't fail drug tests. We don't know exactly what the evidence they okay. have is. We will find out through the arbitration to okay. some degree what they have on A-Rod. A-Rod says he knows what they have. Okay. So A-Rod and his lawyers have assumed that based on what they have, they're willing to let it come out and then fight it. These other guys are probably saying, you know what? Let's not play that game. Let's take our 50 games. You're talking about, what, five minor leaguers here. Right. You know, one guy who's a free agent, not even in baseball, you know, maybe the best course of action for them is to get this over with and try to sure. build on that career and not and keep it at, yeah, we were suspended as part of this big thing, but I heard one guy, what he said his involvement was, he was really sick. Was that Nelson Cruz, I think, who said that? Oh, I'm not sure. I he don't said have he that was really sick, me, but uh, it was something for that. My other thought is, who votes on who goes into the Baseball Hall of Fame? It's the, the writers, writers, right? Yeah. The writers have done a better job maybe of policing this than anybody because they've basically taken a hardline stance that nobody that's found guilty is getting into the Hall of Fame. Uh, at least it's been that way so far. So some people would argue that the the crushed legacy from Braun and from A-Rod and the fact that they will probably never be in the Hall of Fame now maybe is enough. An extra penalty. That's but not there. That's not a ba- that's not a major league baseball in for in, in induced penalty. That's being induced by the writers who are taking that stance. I and it's hope the writers today, the writers in fifty years, could change they, their they, mind. They could, right. and I hope Shope is right. I hope this. I'm not a big baseball guy, but uh, the casual baseball, the casual fan that just sees it as this steroid, like you either have to just accept it or. Look past it, or hope it doesn't exist, or hope what Chope is saying is right. And I guess I hope he's right. I hope this is a sign that it's not happening as much, and baseball is going to take a hard stance on it. And I hope that this isn't just baseball's way of keeping it out of the spotlight. I mean, I know this is in the spotlight now, but it would be in the spotlight longer if it was like a court case for it. So I have the Cruz quote here. It's pretty interesting. Okay, it says by the time I was properly diagnosed and treated, I lost forty pounds. Just weeks before I was to report to training camp or spring training in 2012, I was unsure whether I would be physically able to play. Faced with this situation, I made an error in judgment that I would be phys- that I would deeply regret, and I expect full responsibility for that error. I should have handled the situation differently. Yeah, Evan Longoria has tweets here that says today is a sad day for MLB, the fans of the great game, and all players who have been negatively affected by other selfishness. So good. That's who should be. The players' union should be the ones that are the most angry about this because 
I mean, if they're all out there playing the right way, why would you want cheaters in your game? So, And just a couple words on A-Rod. Look it. He's a fraud. He's a jerk. He's not worth our breath. And I'm not going to spend much time talking about him because it's there. There's hours of it on ESPN yep. if you want it. And there's one guy I was willing to talk about it with, and that's SL Price, who wrote a great feature in SI this week. He's on vacation right now. He'll come and join us when he gets back from vacation, and we'll talk a little bit about it then if that's what I decided to talk about with SL Price. And I'm sure I'll do some of that. But for the most part, we're moving on. Sounds good to me. All right, that was kind of our joint number one. We figured that would take a little longer. So uh, Joint number two. Joint number two is kind of just a rundown of the NFL. This will probably be the case for most of the football season because, A, it's easy, and, B, there's always a lot. When there's games, we'll be doing week, re- week recaps right, right. in this spot. Uh, right now, it's it seems like an injury report. Yeah, Uh before the injury report, to get into more controversial stuff, I think this all might have taken place in between shows here. Is the Riley Cooper? It did. It happened Wednesday. Thing. Uh, he's going to return to practice today after taking a couple days off to go for some counseling. So or... he did that in that short a period of time. Apparently, he's all because he left Friday, right? Yeah, we were talking about not... when we were going down to the show. That's right. So he left Friday. So that means Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, and Tuesday. So in four, he got four days. Of I wonder if it did anything. I don't know. He's saying the right things, really. I feel bad to him. I feel bad for him to some sure. degree. Right. He did the wrong thing. He got drunk, said the wrong thing, which are two separate mistakes, probably. Right. Getting so drunk that you don't remember what you said and being in public is probably one mistake. Especially being a public figure. Right. And then what he said is another mistake. Right. So he made those two mistakes, and now he has to suffer the consequences, but he's out front. He's taking the hits. He's rolling with it. He said today to his teammates, don't forgive me. I don't want the burden to be on you. I want the burden to be on me. Try to judge me from this point forward, which is also something A-Rod said in 2009. <laughs> kind of failed that, I guess. But we'll give Riley, we're not going to, you know, we'll give him his own chance to prove himself. But I've, I mean, I, I don't, Peter King did a great job of writing about this in his column. Yeah, you want Monday morning quarterback. Column. You want to be careful this? not to sound too sympathetic right. for a guy that comes off hey, racist. He effed but- up. Right. He screwed up big time. Yep. But here's the thing. I have no idea if Riley Cooper is racist. Yeah, I don't know. And I don't want to judge him based on a five-second video. You maybe wonder about his personality somewhat based on LaShawn McCoy taking a stance that says, I'm never going to forget him. I don't want him around. But I don't know LaShawn McCoy's past either. I don't know. Like, if Well, LaShawn McCoy has some demons in his own closet. So and I, mean, I don't even mean that. What I meant was like, has, does LaShawn McCoy have a grandpa who was lynched? Or something, sure, right. and it's really sensitive to this, right? You know, I don't know his bad, but I, what Peter King highlighted some things that were interesting. One is Jeremy Macklin tears his ACL, and Riley Cooper has a towel over his head and is balling at camp, right? You know, uh, supposedly his best player on the team is an African American wide receiver, right? You know, a bunch of things that don't scream KKK member. No, you know what I mean. So I, I just don't know. Uh, he messed up. He's got to take whatever punishment. And I think the punishment the team laid out is telling, too. If there's a guy who's clearly a racist uh, cancer in your locker room and he gives you that opportunity, bam, cut, goodbye, right? Right. If it's a guy that you like, that players like, you give him this chance. It's a fine. It's four days away to cool down. It's come back and prove yourself. So I don't know. It's, it's a tight rope because he's maybe their third, fourth, fifth receiver and uh... – had they cut him 
there's a decent chance that nobody touches this guy. Yeah, at least so, not right away, right? Right. I mean, he's not talented. He's not. This isn't Terrell Owens in his prime saying right. something. This is Riley Cooper, cusp. Uh, it's a, rece- it's mean, a mess up, and he's gonna have to. Uh, he's gonna have to. F- he's gonna have to make it up to those guys in the locker room. And there's been some interesting stuff on Twitter about guys saying, you know, he better look out. There's gonna be a safety in this league. who's gonna sure. take a shot, stuff like that. So I, I think that's right, though. I think that's how it should be handled. I don't think he should. I mean, you are the biggest Saints fan I know, and even you kind of sympathize with the guys that were messing with Tim Gleason, saying like. Yeah, look, it was stupid, but it they was. shouldn't lose their livelihood over it. And uh, I think that's how it should work with Riley Cooper. He's going to have to get in front of the people that matter to him, and he's going to have to deal with them. And they've dealt with it. So if they're okay with it, I'm okay with it. I don't need. They it. know more than I do, right? Uh, Jordy Nelson, fantasy players out there, uh, tough that's week owned for the him. pack. Yeah, they. What, Brian Bulaga, yep. they lost for the season, I believe. Yeah, ACL. Lots of ACLs. Yeah, and Jordy Nelson's going to miss camp with knee surgery. Now, I don't know the specifics of this, so maybe it's just one of them where you go in there and clean it out, and it's it'll be better in the long run. But just hearing Jordy Nelson's name on an injury report, raises this would be like hearing Danny Amendola on an injury report. Uh, Not a shock. But, right? yeah, he's going to miss camp with knee surgery. And also in Packers news, they signed Vince Young. They did. I guess it's a nerve issue for for Nelson. Nelson? Yeah. That's all I have from football. The first preseason game was played. You heard the touchdown off the top. I got a bunch more. Uh, the Hall of Fame announcement was this weekend. Oh, right. Yep, yep. Congrats to all the guys who went in the Hall of Fame. Probably Jonathan Ogden was the biggest player. Warren Sapp also made it, as well as Bill Parcells. We'll talk more about Parcells. Jonathan Ogden. You know what's scary from my point of view? Is Jonathan Ogden, I believe, was drafted in 1995. Yeah. <laughs> and now he's a retired Hall of Famer. You know who the two guys they dis- were debating between? So they had two guys' names, right? And they're going to pick one. Obviously, they picked Ogden. You know who the guy was that they passed on to pick Ogden? No. It was Lawrence Phillips. I don't even know who that is. Exactly. Well, Jonathan Ogden certainly deserves it. Phillips was a, oh, he was the best. He's one of the best tackles of all time. There's an right. amazing picture on Twitter of him playing a high school football game. Yes, I saw. Did it. You see that he looks like a, a, a giant. Yeah. I mean, he looks yeah, sick. Seek, seek that out. Yeah. Just type Jonathan Ogden high uh, school high photo. school or something. Yeah, an incredible picture. Uh, what else do we have this week? So there was that. Um, Sanchez was booed already at a little scrimmage. A bunch of teams have been playing scrimmages this week. Getting yeah, things going. The Bills had one last week. The coach or last asked, night. Rex Ryan's asking the fans to go easy on him. Yeah. So I, You're not going to build his confidence up by just 5,000 boos in Cortland on the second week of camp, right? I've but he had another from, butt fumble type incident. Did he really? I didn't Something. See. I don't. I've gone from hating Matt Sanchez, uh, just be, being a division rival. The Jets are probably my least favorite team, but they've almost become such a joke, too, that. It's hard to hate them. I guess I'm going to have to go back to hating the Dolphins or something. The NFL and the Players Association are in discussions to strengthen penalties for drunken driving. Thank God. This is like the most ridiculous thing that plagues the NFL. It's the most preventable thing. Like the NFL has concussions, right? They have uh, problems with attendance because people love to chill at home and watch Red Zone and stuff like that. Those things aren't necessarily as preventable as making sure these guys don't get in cars. So there's going to be stiffer penalties. And Now, we've talked about this in the past, so we, we assume we have some new listeners out there with all the, the media around your Twitter stuff. 
there was a program in place in the past. I can't remember exactly what the name of it was, but the NFL had a dry, safe driver program in place for the players. Now, people were worried they were narcs, right? Yes, they, because they would use that against the players in negotiations, I guess, right. like that. You're a partier. You called the car ten times. Right. Right. you got to reinstate that program and take and away that And they can't be narcs, yeah. Be totally anonymous yep. about it. Have, like, a third-party company do it or whatever that's not going to ask these players' names or whatever. I don't know. Give the player a card that says, hey, I play for the Ravens or whatever. That's that's such a terrible idea that they're, these guys are – Maybe having a little too much fun, but it, but still being responsible, and then you're going to beat them up in a negotiation. Right, because they're not doing anything illegal by going to a bar at 10 o'clock and right. having drinks. I mean, and football's already the toughest sports on their players with no guaranteed contracts, and a guy gets injured, you cut him the next year, you don't pay him. What? Give them that at least. Come on. I mean, they're trying to do the right thing, and you're, you're going to beat them up for it. And then the last thing and most exciting tonight, Tuesday, is the start of what is five straight Tuesdays of Hard Knocks, which is one of the most glorious sports programs in the world it's on hbo it's available on hbo go starting uh wednesday morning featuring the cincinnati bengals this year which wouldn't have been my first choice but my saying has always been any hard knocks is better than no hard knocks which we had in the strike year right yeah no i don't i don't know i mean there's a lot of people out there that are very vocal about not wanting it so i'm not sure if it's a matter of who some hbo teams, picks right. or At hbo or the nfl films is is who seeks them out right and uh that agreement, the agreement between NFL Films and HBO, was extended recently. Good. So apparently they think there's going to be enough teams willing to do it that it was worth uh, worth keeping it up. All right, my third thing this week is just a disaster that just keeps going, and that is Johnny Manziel, the Heisman Trophy winning quarterback from Texas A&M's, got himself Brutal. into more trouble this week, and this could be the worst kind of trouble, and that is apparently... He got, this is according to a report, he got $7,500 for autographs that he signed uh, 300 mini and full-sized helmets on January 11th to 12th while he was attending the Walter Camp Football Foundation event. If that's the case, he will probably be deemed ineligible uh, for the upcoming season. He's not eligible to be entered in any kind of supplemental draft, which essentially means he's going to have to go to Canada or sit out a full year. And we've seen what those things can do to her career, i.e. Maurice Claret, who yeah. tried to challenge the NFL's draft rule. It didn't work out. He ended up sitting out the year. was never the same guy. Uh, Manziel, his summer can't be characterized as anything but a train wreck. The guy's no. been off, off the charts brutal, and this time it might cost him his eligibility. Yeah, I mean, look, to start, I know the legal drinking age is 21, so he's underage drinking. That said... That happens in college. Right. Uh, so to show up hungover or whatever they the said. The Manning camp stuff. Tired right. at the Manning camp. That's That's say. bad. Yeah. Uh, but partying as a college kid isn't unheard of. Nope. Probably not going to take you either, off the draft board for that. Either is necessarily the autograph stuff. It doesn't make him the worst guy on the planet, but what it does make him is really stupid. Re- repeated. Repeated use of stupidity. poor judgment right. over yeah, and over and over again. A pattern of just poor judgment. This guy can be the best guy to come out of college since, I don't know, John Elway or somebody. Who is going to – if you have, like, the f- first overall pick and you're not taking uh, the defensive player. Uh, Clowney. I'm drawing a blank. Clowney, yeah. You're, you could need a quarterback more than 
any teams ever needed a quarterback. Do you touch this guy in the first round? No way. I mean, no way. And and I don't know that his skills necessarily line up to surefire number Well, right, right, he, right. He's shorter. Yeah. You know, he runs a lot. I don't know what his short- evaluation will be. I don't know. I wonder if the shorter thing, for a while in the NHL after the, the last lockout, there was a kind of a run on shorter things, maybe started by the Sabres a little bit with guys like Danny Breer being real successful and uh, – just smaller guys making it in the league. All right, the game adjusted, changed, favored that kind of player. Right, maybe and, that shifted and maybe back the NFL way a little is, bit. Is shifting to the read option type of quarterback. Right, and you have a Drew Brees that's successful as an undersized guy. You have uh, Russell Wilson right. most recently, who's yep. also short. So maybe he is going to be coming up for draft eligibility in the most perfect time for a guy that's a little bit undersized. And he, needed, he needs more time to be evaluated, too. He right, needs to right. show his game is developing, emerging. He doesn't need to be ineligible and just sit out. So he's put this, himself in a yeah. really tough spot. And he accepted, it says, $7,500. You're going to be rich in a, in a year. Right. Just come on. And that's another issue which we'll get into on the next show later this week with Stuart Mandel, which is... The NCAA makes so much money off of this guy, and he can't make $7,500 and literally his signature. It's sure. not accepting a benefit of any kind. Sure. It's literally just his signature. We talked in the past about— That's a different issue, though. We talked in the past a uh, couple episodes ago. I think I think it was Johnny Manziel who's—somebody was selling Johnny football shirts, and the NCAA went after him, even though it's not his name, but they don't mess around with— with anybody selling any likenesses for the longest time in the NCAA football game? He knew this was against the rules. Well, sure. Yeah. yeah. So, I, oh, and I'm not sympathizing with him for this, but the NCAA playing holier than now is is messed up, too. And just uh, there was a great article in Sports Illustrated this week written by Andy Staples. I reached out to him, tried to talk to him. He's the only guy, literally the only guy at SI who pro balls us. <laughs> I don't know what his deal is. Whatever, man. We'll have to get a yeah, Lee or whatever. So, uh, but uh, Stuart Mandel's done a great job of covering this, and we're going to talk to him on Thursday before or after. Probably talk to Eisen. All right, my last thing is short and stupid, and uh, we ran out of music too, so we've gone long to begin with. I was talking through emails to my uh, uh, a buddy of ours about video games he has completed, and he made a comment about how once he finishes this game, he's currently playing. It'll be like the third game he's playing. He's probably under underestimating that stat. I mean, he's a guy that grew up with Nintendos and stuff like that. So I started to, uh, I was curious how many games I've beaten. So I made a spreadsheet and started to write down all the games I knew I beat for which systems. And, uh, I'm going to continue to add to this list as I remember more games. And it has nothing to do with sports. I just want you to know a little bit of where my head is. (laughs) Also, you spent some time, uh, working on what words your name will spell this week. Yeah, that was easy though. I got some (laughs) shit about, uh, crap about how difficult that is but you could type your name into like an anagram generator it'll spit them out for you i wasn't sitting there what was your favorite one oh old rad sons or something like that yeah it's a good one (laughs) all right we'll be right back with adam lazarus Our next guest lives in Atlanta, Georgia, and is a graduate of Kenyon College. He is a member of the Professional Football Writers of America and has had his work published in ESPN, the magazine, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 
He's a freelance sports writer and the author of three books. His first about the 1973 U.S. Open. His second about Super Bowl 25 and his most recent, Best of Rivals, Joe Montana, Steve Young, and the inside story behind the NFL's greatest quarterback controversy. He is making his second appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Adam Lazarus. How's it going today, Adam? Going good. How you doing? Did I get all that right? Still Atlanta? I should have asked you that before. Yep, still yep that's right. Mm-hmm. What about the Braves this year? Are you keeping an eye on them down in Atlanta? Yeah, they're... Um, Ten in a row, huh? Yeah, they're they're dominating that division, which I guess it, it probably meant a lot more if they had done it three or four years ago because that division's sort of fizzled out. But, um, yeah, there's a lot of buzz down here about that, and I think... I think this is the year people will, are going to be ready, you know, to see a playoff victory instead of just making it to the to the playoffs. This are, year. are people going to go? Because that's always the thing, kind of about oh, the Braves, yeah, right? Is that it's like, it's... <laughs> um, I remember that back in uh, back the year they won the World Series in '95, when I was just a kid. I remember hearing David Justice say something about uh, how yeah, they didn't. Yeah, all over. Something not nice about the fans, and then he went out and hit that home run in Game Six. I don't know. I mean, I can tell you this: uh, maybe the numbers aren't there, but the people who do care about the Braves, I I know, are very passionate. And while there's probably a, a lot fewer percentage of Fairweather fans, there's some some real diehards down here. And probably the biggest, uh, I mean, and then obviously you're a professional football writer, or a member of the Professional Football Writers of America, and the Falcons. This is one of those years where the expectations for the Falcons are really high, coming off the season that they had last year, which you could argue is one of the most successful in franchise history. What do you think? Like, where do they go from where they went last year? What is an acceptable season? Is it only making the Super Bowl now? Are they to that point under this regime and this quarterback where the only thing that would be considered acceptable for them is going to the Super Bowl? I mean, you hate to say that for any team, really. Any team, I, I, you hate to say it's Super Bowl or bust, but that, that really is the, the reality of the situation with the Falcons. Uh, they've sort of progressed step-by-step step every year, and, you know, they, they get to the playoffs and win the division. They don't do it in the playoffs, and they finally win the playoff game last year, and they get to the NFC Championship game, and they don't win there. So, you know, the next step is obviously getting to the Super Bowl. But that team's not quite as young as it was before. Um, I mean, guys like – even guys like Roddy White are getting up there in age. But, I, I know, with, with Gonzalez, obviously this is make or break for him. And then they just gave Ryan the huge contract. They did, and, and even Steven Jackson, who you know is supposed to be something of a savior down here, it seems he's getting up there in age too. So I don't think there's anything that they can do that isn't getting to the Super Bowl and frankly winning the Super Bowl because of all that talent. So yeah, I don't you know anything behind um, getting the Super Bowl is definitely is definitely a disappointment for them. I think that first game of the season for the Falcons and for the Saints is going to be such a huge game and. You hate to put so much on an opening day game, but just a couple of seasons ago, actually the season that the Saints lost to the 49ers in the playoffs, so that must have been, yeah, two seasons ago now, the Saints lost their home game to the Falcons, and they kind of never recovered in the sense that they ended up playing that playoff game against the the 49ers on the road, and I I just, as a Saints fan, and, and I'm sure Falcons fan feel the same way, you expect the Saints to be better than they were last year because with Peyton being back, and you don't expect Breeze to throw 19 interceptions again, and if the defense is even a little bit better than historically all-time awful, you know, they should be able to go from a 7-win team to at least a 10-win team, but it just seems like there's going to be so much on that first game, 1 o'clock, first day of the season, first Sunday of the season in New Orleans uh, against the Falcons. Yeah, I agree. That's um, Like you said, you'd never want to say anything's a must-win situation, let alone week one, but 
uh, yeah, that's a that's a tough rivalry. It's a real intense rivalry. For it being in New Orleans is going to be a big deal. Um, and it's hard to find a team in football with more weapons on offense than the Falcons have. And so going up against that Saints defense, if they can do anything, if, if New Orleans can do anything to slow them down, I mean, if they can keep them under 30, it's probably a, they have a good chance of winning. So that is going to be one of those first big games out of the gate. And, um, yeah, and I, I do think you're right. In, in some sense, I, I feel like everything about the Saints last year was sort of um, they were playing with house money, given uh, the, uh, the, the um, bounty gate and uh, missing Peyton. So I think that this year they're, full, they're having a full complement back. Um, a lot more is expected out of them, and a lot more will, will come out of them this season. Yeah, I, I mean, I know I have really high expectations, but this is the time of the year for that, right? I mean, even living in Buffalo, I see this year maybe more than any year recently, for sure. There's, I guess there was a little bit of this last year, but... I feel a little bit more, and that's just kind of like this vibe of, you know, yeah, we haven't made the playoffs in so long, and maybe we don't make the playoffs this year, but maybe we do. You know, maybe, you know, Emmanuel's the guy who can finally lead this team, you know, the first guy who can really do it effectively since Kelly. You feel that optimism this time of the year more than any, and we were kind of talking on Twitter about how, you know, looking at your books and, and having you back, that that Super Bowl twenty five season that you spent so much time kind of like looking into and covering – I remember going into that season, the year, the year before, the Bills had lost a playoff game in Cleveland. Ronnie mm-hmm. Harmon dropped the ball in the corner of the end zone. That probably I don't remember if it yep. tied the game or given the Bills the lead. I don't remember. It would have given them. They were down 34-30. to 30, and then Okay. That was on a third down, and then the next play, uh, Kelly was picked off by Clay Matthews, I think. Um, and, yeah, that was right at the end of the game. And uh, that, was, uh, that was the real start of the Kagon offense, as a side note. Um, they went to that in the, in the second half, and it's, it's when, it, when they sort of went, Kelly sort of went crazy with uh, passing the ball, especially to Thurman Thomas out of the backfield. Um, so that was a pivotal game. But I understand what you're saying. I, mean, I would say not all 32 teams, but probably you know, outside of a couple cities. This is the, the highlight optimism time of year, and definitely in Buffalo. Um, you know, I think... Yeah, the way from what I gather, hearing people talk, C.J. Spiller is going to be like Adrian Peterson this year. Right, and that's yeah. probably the stretch. But they do have uh, things are starting to fall in place, and and you know the buzz around Manuel is crazy. So this could be the year, and and you have to admit, I mean, even if it's just a bit, uh, the, the Patriots are down this year from all the injuries and and. Um, with Gronkowski and Hernandez and losing Wes Welker, that defense will probably be better. But uh, I think they are—they're all going to probably come back a little to the pack on offense, and that should open the door for all those teams in the AFC East. You know, it's a great example of kind of the buzz around here right now. Is the other day I wake up and I see a tweet saying that Cobb was walking to practice, slipped on a wet mat, injured his knee, and needed to leave immediately. You know, immediately he made it like three steps towards the practice field, hurt his knee on a mat or something, couldn't practice. Yeah. So normally I would think the response from Bills fans would be oh my God, this team is just doomed. Nothing can ever go right. Instead, the response was, what a blessing. It's more steps, snaps from Manuel. You know, this guy's going to get the job now. This is the guy we want in place. It's like, it's su- such a bizarre kind of reaction to that, but it just kind of lends to kind of the buzz surrounding the team in a way. Yeah, I think that's, um, I don't know. I think that the Cobb move was in a way sort of a, a safe play. You know, he was out there. They didn't have to give up terribly much to get him. Um, but you, you just look at the situation around Manuel, and if, if they were that uh, smitten with him to make him that first quarterback taken when, when nobody you know, really expected that, um, I think that says a lot about him, and I think it does give it them the sort of high-profile guy that they, I don't think they've really had 
in a long time. Any one of those quarterbacks they've had since you mentioned Kelly hasn't quite had maybe not the star power, but the ability, the, the, the potential to be a great player. I think you know Bledsoe was at the second half of his career, and Fitzpatrick was a good player but not a great player, and some of the draft picks they've had haven't been we haven't really panned out. So I think um, you can understand that. It's a lot like, what I think, when Kelly came to the Bills in the mid-'80s. Um, a lot was expected of him right away. Uh, he was a first-round pick, and he had, had a good, he had a great college career. And I think Manuel was sort of comparable in that way. Um, certainly he wasn't uh, a Heisman winner or anything like that in, in at Florida State, but I think a lot of people really respected him and really liked his game, and they think it translate well, translates well to the NFL. So I think I can understand the eagerness of Bills fans to see him in week one instead of sort of, you know, pussyfooting along and waiting until, you know, week four, week five when Cobb's, you know, hopefully Cobb will have a bad game today and we can put in Manuel. So it would be nice to see him have 16 games under his belt right away. Yeah, you know, uh, friends of mine and I, we were talking this weekend, and we actually we were talking about this too, about how, with Parcells being inducted into the Hall of Fame this weekend, how, how it might open some wounds with Super Bowl 25, and we thought it'd be a perfect opportunity to talk a little bit more about your Super Bowl 25 book, which is something we've wanted to do for a long time, kind of just waiting for the, an opportunity or reason to do it, and this was the perfect one. And the thing that I think about that period the most is that Super Bowl 25 was really the only time going into that game you could say the Bills were the better team. I mean, if you think about the weekend before that, or maybe two weekends before, I don't remember if there was one or two before that Super Bowl. Yeah, it was because of, yeah, it was just one week. It was just one. That's what I thought. But uh, the 49ers were the team, I think, that everyone expected to play, but Montana gets hurt in that game and ends up being the Giants, so you think the Bills get a break there. And then the, mm-hmm. the Bills dominated that AFC Championship game. I mean, they... They killed it. They won what fifty-two to three? Is that right? I mean, fifty-one to three. Fifty-one to three, some exorbitant amount, and that was the year where it felt like, okay, let's do this. And when you think about how close they were to cashing it in, and I feel so bad for Norwood in the sense that everyone kind of looks at that play, but I bet someone who studied that game like you have would probably say, let's take a little bit of the blame away from Norwood and look at these other things, right? What are those other things that really, if it is, maybe it is Norwood to you, but are there some other no, factors? No, the thing that I always point is, uh, yes, Norwood could have made the kick, obviously. Right. Uh, 20 did. years ago, I think. Today, if, you, if, that, if we're in those circumstances, uh, Super Bowl coming down the last kick, 47 yards, guy, you know, he's going to be a goat if he misses it. He's going to be expected to make it, especially in light of what uh, Adam Vinatieri has done. Um, but I do think that it's wrong to blame Norwood. Uh, I think he was one of five on kicks outdoors in grass uh, from that length or above. So he wasn't a long-distance kicker. He was a great kicker from, you know, from inside the 40. That was his real specialty. Um, you know, uh, there's never been a, I don't think there's ever been a man with more pressure on his shoulders in NFL history than Scott Norwood lining up that kick. 47 yards, uh, you know, it's not one of those situations, I've said this before, as great as what Vinatieri did, he misses those two kicks, they go to overtime. Uh, I think, you know, you'd have to think maybe he's thinking that in the back of his mind. Norwood misses that kick, they lose the game, he's a goat, and that's what happened. So there wasn't sort of that uh, bailout in a way, if you look at it like that. But, um, so it was a tough kick, he could have made it, it was on grass, um, it didn't work out, but it's wrong to put the, the put it all on Norwood, especially when you look at what else happened in the rest of that game. Um, you look at the Bills' defense, which had so many great players, Daryl Talley and Cornelius Bennett, and obviously Bruce Smith and, and Nate Odoms, Shane Conlon, and they had so many guys in the front seven and, and a pretty good defensive backfield. They led Jeff Hosteller, who was a backup quarterback his whole career, 
They let Jeff Hostetler and Otis Anderson get third down after third down after third down in the second half, and that's what cost the Bills a game. Was they couldn't stop anyone on third. It couldn't stop the Giants on third down. There was a long one by Ingram too, right? Yeah, um, Ingram, yeah, they missed about seven tackles on one play. That Ingram, I think it was third and nine, and Ingram caught a pass well short of the first down marker and got, spun around one guy, juked another guy, dove forward, moved, missed a tackle. Um, there were so many players like that in the game. The Bills had uh, the Giants' offense just completely contained and then at the last second let them out. And that's, what, that's where the game comes down to. And, and the other thing that you have to look at regarding that game is um, it was going to be, you know, that Bills' offense had scored 41 uh, 44 points in the first playoff game, 51 points in the second playoff game. It was already being talked about as one of the greatest offenses in NFL history. Um, you know, they had Kelly, they had Thurman Thomas, they had two great receivers in um, Andre Reid and James Lofton. They had a very good offensive line, if not a great offensive line. People were saying this is going to be an offense that dominates the NFL for years, and they were only able to get uh, 19 points. You, you know, it, it was just you take away two points, you really only got 17 points. So they got two touchdowns, and they really were handcuffed by the Giants' defense, which was so great historically, but had been considered, you know, borderline getting up there in age. LT was, uh, get, you know, was reaching the end of his career, and, and, and a lot of those guys on defense were into their 30s. So I think the Bills, um, more than anything, had a lot of opportunities sort of slip by them. Um, there was a play in the first quarter that may have changed the whole game. Kelly underthrew uh, James Lofton on a big deep fade that. Would have been a touchdown. It got they caught it, but it got down to about the four, and they had to settle for a field goal. The Bills really had to settle for for too many field goal opportunities in that game, and I think that was um, really the difference. You know, now that Bill Parcells is in the Hall of Fame, both of the head coaches of this game are in the Hall of Fame, and at some point, Bill Parcells, who was the one of the coordinators for the Giants, will also be in the Hall of Fame. And I think when you look at this game, obviously the game plan that the Giants staff put together is a big reason that they were able to win, because I would think no one would, not many people would really debate that the Bills were probably the more talented team. I think they were the team, they were a seven-point favorite in the game. So obviously they were the team that was expected to win. And I think that there's a thing around here in Buffalo is, you know, a big criticism of Marv Levy as the coach, if there is one, is that he was always out coaching these Super Bowl games. You know, he didn't do things like put a curfew on the team. You know, allegedly. I, I mean, I don't know if there was a curfew. I hear that there wasn't. I, I guess there wasn't. I don't know for sure. But that's a thing that goes around here. You know, what about Parcells and the job that he did? And how big of a factor do you think the way he coached in these Super Bowl victories, you know, what, what kind of a factor was that in him eventually being enshrined in Canton? Because obviously Levy was able to be enshrined in Canton without having those performances. Well, I think you're right that um, no one would, would question that the, the wealth of talent, and especially young talent, uh, was overwhelmingly on Buffalo's side. Um, you know, every, like you said earlier, everybody was expecting the 49ers to win that NFC Championship game and win it pretty handily to set up the Bills 49ers Super Bowl. And in one of the great games and one of the great upsets, I think, uh, in playoff history, the Giants went out there and beat the 49ers um, and completely corralled that offense, which had Montana and, and uh, Rice and everybody, which had won the previous two Super Bowls. So I think right there we should have you know, everybody should have taken a little bit more of a, a closer look at the Giants and said, "This is a big. This is still a big time team with a big time defense." So, um, I'm not. I, it's it's strange that the the talent was so overwhelmingly on Buffalo's side, but I think as a team there wasn't a better complement of team of, of team defense and even team offense as you saw on that Giants team. And what Parcells did, and he said this over and over again before, and he said it after. He said it to me 20 years after was they basically wanted to take the air out of the football and keep it on the ground, run the clock, 
keep the ball away from Kelly in the offense. Um, and that's what they did. And uh, a, a big factor in that was those third downs that I mentioned earlier, that they were able to get, I think, seven third down conversions in a row in the second half or, or so. Um, and that was a huge factor in keeping Kelly and, and the no huddle, which needed, you know, obviously had to go on timing and rhythm, uh, keeping them out of sync. Um, a big factor, I think, in that game was the Giants had a huge drive, 10-play drive at the end of the first half, netted a touchdown, gave them the lead going into halftime. Um, then you have a 45-minute Super Bowl halftime, and then the Giants got the ball to start the second half and drove down the field, I think, 14 plays, one of the longest drives in Super Bowl history, and kept the ball for another 14 plays. So there was a, a point, it was about an hour and five minutes, I think it was, where the Bills' offense didn't take a snap. And you know in any game, any offense, that's a long time, but especially for that offense, which was the K-gun and getting into a rhythm and Kelly calling the plays they needed to call and the, the offense feeling their way and seeing what the defense was giving them, I think that was a, a major factor, and it worked perfectly to Parcel's strategy. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted these long drives to take the ball away from Kelly and the offense, and it worked. Um, and I think that was a mastery of Parcel's, and, and Belichick's defense obviously was, was a huge factor in that and got him the job, got him his first head coaching job in Cleveland right after that. But um, I'm not sure there was a, a, a game plan that was more perfectly executed and, you know, luckily executed than the Giants had. It, just everything needed to go right for them to win that day, and it did. You know, it's so interesting. I'm listening to you answer that question, and if I didn't know what the question was, I might think you're describing the tactic that Sean Payton and the Saints used against the, the Colts in the Super Bowl that the Saints won in 2010. And, you know, Peyton is a disciple of Parcells. You know, when you hear Peyton talk about where he is, where he is today, you never don't hear him give most of the credit to Parcells and the influence that Parcells had on him. You know, so Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's ironic that you say that, though, um, just because uh, you look at the Saints' offense, and it's, it's a, even back in 2009, uh, it was explosive. It was score quickly. It was, you know, throw the ball, put the ball through the air. Um, and I, I think it's funny that, that in some ways that that was good enough to slow down the Colts' offense because the, the NFL's changed so much that um, right. the passing game dominates more than anything. I mean, even 20 years ago, in 1990, 1991, when the Bills and Giants played, you ran the ball first, and you know everything else rotated off the passing game, or rotated off the running game. And, I mean, that was the thing that uh, Parcells and the Giants, and Belichick especially, said First off, their, their top priority was stopping Thurman Thomas. Um, he was just becoming probably the best back in the game at that point, and their whole objective was to stop Thurman Thomas, um, which they didn't really do. No, he would have been the um, MVP if that kick goes in. Right? He definitely would have been. Right. He even got an MVP vote. Right. But um, he he still that was their top goal. And I don't, you know, how many teams today, how many Super Bowls today, uh, do you hear stop the running back, stop the run? That's our, our top goal. Um, I think it signals a, you know, a, a drastic shift in, in how the game's played at the professional level. You know, the the, the interesting thing about uh, the Peyton thing, we'll get back to this, was that he knew he had a steal possession, and the time that he decided to do it was right after that long halftime, which is part of where you mentioned the, the game kind of getting away from the Bills a little bit. Those long halftimes in the Super Bowl can wreak a lot of havoc. Mm -hmm. You know, I was looking, the Bills in that season were held to under 20 points four times total. Uh, the second week of the season and a loss at Miami, uh, a 14 nothing win at home against the Patriots, and then the two games against the Giants, one that they won in Giants Stadium, 17-13, to and then the Super Bowl loss. And the Bills actually knocked Phil Simms out of the season in that game against the Giants that they won in mm -hmm. Giants Stadium. How do you think this game might have been different or the same if Phil, if Phil Simms is the quarterback and not 
Hostel. Do you think it changes the Giants in that game at all? I'd, I'd hate to say whether or not it would have changed the outcome, um, but I do think it, it definitely would have changed the, the approach the Giants had and what they were able to do. Hostetler's mobility, I mean, he wasn't Michael Vick, but he had great athleticism. He was very mobile. He could move when he had to. He could, he could scramble when he had to. Um, that was a big factor in the game, and uh, I think that was something that was often overlooked about Hostetler's play. You know, he's, he's remembered for that Super Bowl, and he's remembered for pretty much not much else. Um, but he, he gave them a dimension that they needed in that game. It was rolling out. He, there were some plays where he rolled out of the pocket. There were some plays where he escaped a few um, of those Bill sacks. Um, and I think that was that may have been a, a deciding element in the game. I mean, obviously, Sims is the better pure passer. His one Super Bowl was the most accurate in history in, in 86. But I do think it gave the Bills... Uh, gave the Giants something extra, and it definitely gave the Bills something extra to have to defend because they had they probably had a lot of pages from their game plan from that earlier uh, visit to the Meadowlands earlier in the season, and it sort of changed up what they wanted to do, having this guy back there who could move around. You know, I'm working on a pitch right now that I'm going to send out to NBC Sports to try to get Al Michaels on the show. And, you know, Al Michaels is a guy who... Anytime I hear him talk and, and the stories that he has, I think I heard him on maybe Peter King had him on his podcast. I know Simmons has had him on his. And I just wonder, in, in doing your book, did you, did you get a sense at all of, of where Michaels puts this game in terms of memories of what he's what he's done as an announcer? Or like, I guess even besides Michaels, like where do people put this game? Like, because sometimes you don't necessarily hear about this game other than a missed kick. But where does this game stand when people look back on the Super Bowls and, and, and maybe their individual careers? What kind of sense did you get of what people think about this game 20 years later or whatever? Well, I know that I talked to Frank Gifford, who was on that broadcast, and uh, he said this around the time that it happened, and he said it years later, that um, because this is, uh, we should backtrack, that this is the start of the desert, uh, Operation Desert Storm right. and the Gulf War was only about 10 days old. And while the Gulf War probably doesn't, uh, have the same level of seriousness to us now, 20 years later, given uh, you know uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, you know, 10 years, 10 years ago, and how long that's gone out, and and the seriousness of that. Um, that was a big deal in '91. There was a lot of a lot going on in the country. There was a lot of um, confusion, a lot of fear. It had been a long time since um, America had been in a full-scale war, and I think there were. This is when sort of terrorism, it sort of started to, to become more of a, a realism for, for people in the States. And I think there was a lot of, I don't want to say panic, but people were at a heightened state of awareness going into that Super Bowl. They were, there was a lot of discussion of the game being postponed or canceled or what. And, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of emotions involved in that game outside of football. Um, and when Whitney Houston gave the national, delivered the national anthem, which most people agree is, is the most famous rendition of the national anthem ever, I think it stirred up a lot of those, those emotions in people, and it was such a great performance, and she was you know, the biggest name in music probably at that time. Um, so that was a real special moment for football and for the country, and I think anybody who was there and broadcasting and remembers watching it on TV can sort of remember and go back in time and think about that. Um, and Frank Gifford said that it was the most electric moment he'd ever been around. And this is a guy who'd been in NFL championships and Super Bowls and, and U.S. Opens. So that says something right there. And I think um, that's one of the reasons why this game has a sort of special, it sort of stands out in the history of Super Bowls. The game itself was the closest ever, and it was a, several lead changes, and there were Hall of Famers on both sides. And then you added this element of, of real 
uh, patriotism and, and pride in our country, and, and it made for a special moment. And I think, uh, I don't know what Al Michaels would say, but I would have a hard time believing of all the broadcasts he's done, you know, this has to be right up there with uh, The Miracle on Ice. Did you try to talk to Al for this book? Uh, I did. I think I reached out to some of his people. Um, uh, I think he was at NBC at the time. And uh, no, I never got a hold of him. Uh, I did interview Dan Deardorff and spoke to Frank Gifford, who wrote a back jacket blurb. Um, I didn't talk to Al, but um, that would have been, you know, he, he would have had some great insights. I did get some great stories from Dan uh, that are in the book about um, sort of the precautions they had went through because they they talked about there being some kind of there was real fear that something was going to happen during the game and, and that's a lot is in that is in my book about that that there might be some kind of attack during the game and Dan Deardorff told me a story that's in the book of some of the precautions that uh, the the FBI and some other agencies had went through with them right before the game. Uh, that are pretty interesting. So if you if you want to read more about that, pick up the book. Yeah, the book we should mention officially. The book is called Super Bowl Monday, and it's pretty much available everywhere. I got an e-book copy of it, and it's available in stores. And we mentioned Best of Rivals. The other book is called Chasing Greatness about the 1973 U.S. Open. You know, I talked to Rob Meech, who's a guy who wrote a book about uh, Harper, and uh, you know, he got everyone. He got amazing access for his book, but. The guy, his Harper's dad, was the one guy who kind of spurned him, and that really didn't talk to him or, or really get involved in the book. Is that kind of a frustrating thing? When I mean, you got incredible access for your book about Steve Young and Joe Montana. Is that can that be a frustrating thing where it's like a guy that you need to get or that you love to get, and they just won't kind of be there to do it for you? That's probably the most frustrating thing. Um, it's you know, it, it's frustrating on so many levels. Um, you know, that's one of the ways you sell a book to a publisher is the access. Uh, and then, you know, as much as you can map out a book on anything, on any subject, but specifically, you know, you take a sporting event or, or a player's career, you can map out what you know. You know, you know this happened. You know um, there was this down point in his career or there was this great play in this game or whatever. But it's it, sometimes you don't uncover those things until you talk to someone. I know that um, uh, I didn't intend to do a great deal on Bill Parcells in the Super Bowl Monday book. Um, but I was so fortunate to have, uh, he was as, as nice as anybody can be. It's almost like his, you, you, I, I if, if you didn't know it, you wouldn't, if you know, if you knew him today, you wouldn't believe those stories about his, his temper and everything and how, um, sort of cranky he could be with the reporters during his career. Uh, he, he gave me so much time and actually let me do a follow-up interview with him and everything. And just talking to him about his career and football brought up, um, a lot of different little subplots in his life and things he was thinking during that game and how he became the Giants coach. and Those were great additions to the book. So you never really know what you're going to get out of people until you actually sit down with them or talk to them on the phone. So when you don't get those interviews with key people, um, it is frustrating, and it, it, you do lose some of the richness of the story. I'll say that you know all three of my books I've done hundreds of hours of newspaper research, uh, old newspapers, today's you know, you know, flashback newspaper articles that people have written years later, and those were tremendously valuable. Um, and I, got a, I, got, you know, I really zeroed in on facts that way. But getting to sit down with the people who are involved is, is the most important thing because they provide the real story and the real what I was thinking here moments. And um, so anytime you don't get those kind of interviews, it does hurt. Uh, but like you said, with my three books, I've been very fortunate, and especially this last one. I was pretty much everybody I needed to talk to. Um, I got a hold of for this Montana Young book, and they were great, and, and they provided a lot of uh, more candor than I would have thought. So you know, like you said, if you don't get to 
you, you can do without it, but it, it's in your best interest. It's in the reader's best interest. It's in the story's best interest to have those people involved. Do you think that the reason that your last book, you got the, the best access is because now you have a track record? You know, do you yeah, th- I think that was a big help. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, I know we're sort of off the reservation here, and yeah, I don't, I don't mind right. it, but yeah. uh, I've, I guess I haven't really talked about these things. I think um, there are a lot of people, uh, you could say celebrities in general, but definitely athletes, who are leery about talking to the media, and for very good reason. And I think you don't know, I think they think of someone, if they don't know them, if they don't know it's Bill Simmons, or they don't know it's, you know, even if it's out of sports, someone like David McCullough or someone, if they don't know, they don't want to roll the dice. And, um, cause they're, you know, there's, a, as much as there's Twitter and the internet today, I think journalists still have a code of conduct. And if someone says something's going to be off the record, they'll keep it off the record, which I certainly did. And people ask me to. So I think there's a, there's some apprehension by interview subjects about going out there and, um, just talking in general, and then when you throw in, you know, a story like Montana and Young, which is sensitive to a degree, uh, I don't think they didn't. They wanted to, you know, there was a chance that they could say something that they knew was going to open up a story. If I had gotten Steve Young to say something bad about Joe Montana, um, it would have. I'm not sure it would have been news uh, in the mainstream media if ESPN would have written something about it that. Steve Young said this about Joe Montana 20 years later, but I think they could be worried about that. They don't want to get involved in all that. And I mean, you see how one little thing on the internet can blow up to a huge thing even today. And when you take guys like Montana and Young, who are you know true legends of the game and who've also been out of the spotlight to a degree for the last 15, 20 years, I don't think they wanted to open up a can of worms if they didn't have to. So I think there's a lot of guys who feel that way, that um, it's not worth the headache. But uh, I think some guys who, you know, if you can build a good relationship, if you can show a good track record, and you can show that you're not sort of a scandal journalist, then guys are going to um, be more willing to open up. And I, I, that's sort of how I am. I, you know, my, my goal isn't to make headlines, it's to tell a story. All three of my books have their sort of t- um, tenuous moments and, uh, you know, emotions and, and even some degree of controversy. But my, my real goal out there is to tell a great story, a great sports story. Um, and that's what I did in all three of my books. And I think people who, you know, if I'm trying to sit down with someone, I think that's one of the first things I try to uh, express to them is that I'm not out here to catch, you know, to, to make a quick buck and, and, and scam you in any way and make you look bad just to get headlines. I, I just like telling the story. I like telling, telling people's stories. I like telling sports stories. That's sort of, I guess, how I try to sell a project that way. You know, it's interesting, too, because, like, with booking this show, you know, it's like Jeff Passon was nice enough to take a chance on us before we had any track record. He was literally the first guest on the first show. And then Richard Deutsch was on our third show, and Joe Poznanski was on our sixth, which kind of opened the door to Sports Illustrated. But Mm -hmm. one thing that was maybe kind of important, I don't know, interesting story, though, is that Jeff Perlman is a guy who's had a decent relationship with us, and um, he was work. He's been working on this book, which now is out. It's called Showtime. It's about the Lakers, the '80s Lakers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he wrote a. He, he's a great guy. He wrote a uh, a black jacket bird for my Montana Young book, and he's sort of in in a way one of uh, my role models for this kind of business, writing sports stories. You know, sweetness and boys will be boys and the bad guys won and everything or you know those are sort of classics for people of my generation well he was keeping the subject he like he's he's real paranoid when it comes to you know i think probably i think it was his clemens book or, or maybe it was his bonds book one of those kind of another book similarly came out it must have been the bonds book and the game of shadows book those had kind of come out 
simultaneously. Yeah. And that hurt. Yeah, they did. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. So he, he likes to keep this. And I knew his book was about Showtime, and he knew I knew. I just kind of mm-hmm. figured it out and asked him. Well, right a couple weeks, maybe a couple months ago, John Wertheim was on the show, and we were just talking about books that were coming out. And I mentioned that, uh, you know, Perlman had a book coming out, and uh, Wertheim actually said, yeah, it's about the Lakers. It's going to be great. And I was like, oh, you know, like, oh, man. So when we finished, I called Jeff up and I said, you know, do you want me to cut that? You know, I, you know, I didn't say it. I'm like, but I know it's not out there yet and I'll cut it if you want, you know, no problem. And, and I think you really appreciated that. And now I know, you know, like it would have, it meant nothing for us to have that in there. And it made, it would have made so much sense if he wanted to cut it to cut it because who knows when we might need him to vouch for us or want to have him on again. And sometimes I feel like people miss that for some reason, you know, like, I don't know. Maybe a, yeah, I can understand why. I mean, you you, you sort of want to keep things under wraps as long as you have to, and you don't want word to leak. Um, you know, I think it's sort of a brave new world for a lot of people in this business, given Twitter and, and the internet and the way rumors can spread. So, you know, and uh, you know, I think we're still sort of, in a way, we're sort of all trying to figure it out on all all fronts of how to deal with some of this new media and how quickly information passes. So. Um, I, things like that don't surprise me. I mean, I know I wouldn't want uh, anything from my book to leak if, if I wasn't ready for it to leak because uh, I wouldn't want somebody to hear about it, you know, who didn't, who I hadn't interviewed or hadn't gotten a hold of. Um, so it, it's it's a tough it's a tough way to to go about putting a project together from start to finish when you have um, the 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 ease with which information can pass through these days. Are you planning or working on a fourth book? No, not right now. I'm sort of waiting for the right project. I think, in a way, my last three books have, have sort of all sort of um, proceeded along the same track. Uh, they've, they've been some. They've they've been completely different in one way and, and been relatively similar in another way. So I'm trying to find a more uh, a, a new project, a new sort of original idea to come up with, which hasn't hit yet. But uh, I'm always on the lookout for one. Well, I just wanted to mention again the books that we've talked about in this interview: Super Bowl Monday. From the Persian Gulf to the shores of West Florida, the New York Giants, the Buffalo Bills, and Super Bowl 25. It's available on Amazon. It's available for the Kindle, for the Nook. Also, the other book, the most recent book, which was once a sportscaster's book club book of the month. I think we even gave away a copy. It's called Best of Rivals. Uh, Joe Montana, Steve Young, and the inside story behind NFL's greatest quarterback controversy. You can find Adam on Twitter. It's at L-A-Z-A-R-U-S-A-57. Anything else for the listeners? Anything you're going to be doing with this football season? Anything you're going to be writing anywhere to look for you? Um, n- not right now, but uh, you know, I'd like to get you guys another book to give away. Um, the book's going to paperback this fall. I can, get, I can uh, certainly arrange for you guys to get one. Um, doing, I'm not sure how many of your listeners are in Atlanta, but I'm doing the Atlanta uh, Book Festival. The AJC's a, a Decatur Book Festival this September, or actually it's August 31st. I'm doing it um, along with another guy who's got an NFL book coming out. We're doing sort of a, it's on Robert Griffin III. We're doing sort of a quarterback history, future and present and past um, panel. We're going to have you know, 45 minutes talking about our books and taking questions. So if anybody is in the Atlanta area and wants to stop by, that's August 31st, and love to have you there. Awesome. Is anything different on the paperback? You, you put an extra chapter in or anything, or is it just the same book but softer No, it's cover? the same book. Same um, just went to paperback, made a few uh, corrections to a few things here and there, but uh, no, it's pretty much the same book. Thanks so much for the Great time. Great photos I... inside. That's something I'm really proud of. Uh, 
great photographer who's been with the 49ers for years and, and the Oakland Athletics also. And Michael Zagaris gave me just about all the photos. Um, if you're if you're into that sort of thing, and these are most of these are pretty original photos that few people have seen. So that's uh, those are in the book too. They're in both copies. Um, but I, you know, I, I strongly recommend that part of the book too. They, they they show a great side of Montana and Young and help tell the story. I think. Awesome. Thank you so much for all the time. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks a lot for having me. All right. Talk to you soon. All right, last call for the book club book of the month for the end of July, beginning of August, Difficult Men Behind the Scenes of the Creative Revolution, from The Sopranos and The Wire to Mad Men and Breaking Bad. We are going to have Brett Martin, the author of this book, on next week's podcast, which will be season three, episode number 22. And we are going to talk to him about what, as I've kind of decided, is a really great book he wrote about the difficult men, the kind of new anti-heroes. And it will be interesting to see what he says about what will be the start of the end of another anti-heroes run as this Sunday we will begin the final stretch of episodes of The Great Breaking Bad. Now, Don, you haven't seen Breaking Bad, right? No, I haven't. You haven't seen The Wire or Breaking Bad. Nope. Which is brutal. Yes. Yeah, so you need to work <laughs> on both of those things. Um, I'm not even sure, like... Which one I would say to do quicker, but I would. So you're you're all in on Breaking Bad now. Oh yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. They have that uh, Family Guy episode where they talk about how they brainwash Peter, and I can't, I'm going to mess up the line, but they talk about how you will tell everyone Breaking Bad is the greatest show on <laughs> the world, except for maybe The Wire. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not going to go. It, it's a really good show. I I don't know where it ranks. It'll be interesting to see what Brett, someone who studied this for so long thanks but we're going to track him down this week discuss that and air it next time one 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 last time i would say the book is called difficult men behind the scenes of a creative revolution from the sopranos and the wire to mad men and breaking bad the author is brett martin we'll have him on the show next week we're going to take a break and come back with patrick burns who is not a dead former nhl coach he is an alive former tcu student who writes for Deadspin sometimes. Gotcha. All right. Our next guest is from Plano, Texas, and is a graduate of Texas Christian University. He is a former intern at The Onion and is the current Bristol Metrics guy at Deadspin. He recently watched an entire year's worth of SportsCenter episodes and charted his results. He is making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Patrick Burns. What's up, Pat? Uh, not much. It's a pretty interesting fight song. I mean, is there normally just a pause in the middle like that, or was that just kind of a whack version of it? No, that that is definitely there's a kind of a you know after that kind of the the kind of initial fanfare there's a raw raw TCU raw raw TCU and then the music starts back up. They usually don't. I've heard that I've heard that version a couple of times. They usually kind of they not have the raw raw TCU part, but I know they definitely like it's a. I, def, I wouldn't say like a plan. That's when you, usually people get pretty loud about uh, you know when they recite that part. What years were you at TCU? 
I was there from 2007 to 2011. The last game I actually ever went to was with my uh, dad, the Rose Bowl. So that was a pretty awesome way to close out my uh, college career, seeing a pretty, like, you know, an amazing game. We were right there, kind of on the near the end zone when they were, you know, when Wisconsin went for two and ended up not getting it. And yeah, it was a just a crazy, like, you know, time. Like, cause, you know, when I got there, no one was really expecting them. You know, they were regarded as, you know, pretty good, but, you know, never a team that was going to, you know, compete for a BCS game or, you know, BCS game and ended up, you know, bumping too. So I had no regrets doing that stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty, that's a pretty great way to go out, huh? Senior year and get to go to the Rose Bowl and see him, see him win that. That's mm-hmm, pretty, yeah. that's pretty sweet for sure. Yeah. Uh, Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in this Bristol metric stuff, and I want to get into some of the specifics of the article that you've written. Actually, you've written several different Bristol metrics articles. Before we get to any of that, why don't you tell me a little bit about where the idea for this came up and how you ended up doing this for Deadspin? Um, yeah, I guess I remember when um, it was interesting. I think I kind of come up with the idea before I had actually started, started you know, interning and doing some stuff with Deadspin. I remember when... Uh, when Will Leach was back, you know, when he was helming the site, he, when he was promoting it, I think it was one of his books, he ended up doing basically a 24-hour marathon of just all ESPN. And the idea was, you know, could he, you know, you know, keep his sanity and watch, you know, being able to watch, you know, all the sport, because that's when, I think, you know, when that book was coming out, it was when they started to do um, the Sports Centers Live. So it was about, you know, 10 or so, you know, sport, you know, included like 10 or so sports centers, a couple of live games, you know, and, and I think coming up with that idea of, man, like, I guess it, just, you know, the idea of someone having to watch that many, you know, that many, you know, you know, for a day or so um, was kind of intriguing. And then on top of that, I think, you know, I, I had heard, so, you know, there were so many, you know, talks of people that were, you know, I remember hearing a lot from hockey fans kind of saying that you know, ESPN always ignores hockey and there was, you know, I think there was pretty good anecdotal proof of just the fact that, you know, it wasn't really mentioned, but I wanted to know, you know, some, you know, kind of hard, you know, a good baseline statistically of how much, you know, they talked about each sport, you know, because there was the idea of, you know, of being able to, you know, um, you know, instead of just hearing, you know, talk or, you know, and stuff of people saying, no, this is, you know, they, they rarely ever talk about that. I wanted, you know, some kind of hard definitive proof. And around that same time, I was kind of, you know, re, uh, you know, uh, began to get really interested in, you know, stuff with uh, advanced baseball, like statistics and stuff like that, you know, looking at uh, websites like sand graphs and things like that. And so it, it was kind of this culmination of becoming really interested in stats, you know, wanting to kind of, you know, put, you know, those kind of arguments to rest about is there, is there some, you know, some sort of agenda at ESPN that promotes, you know, more, you know, teams on the East Coast or more team, you know, more NBA or more NFL than uh, baseball and, and hockey. And I think, those kind of big culminations, you know, kind of gave me the idea of, well, why not look at Sports Center for, you know, just you know, one hour a day for, um, you know, the one, you know, kind of the what's regarded as the most, you know, uh, the well, flagship or, the show most watched, yeah, right, it, it kind of the, um, you know, that that program just kind of seeing, you know, is there is there any sort of bias or is there any sort of preference? And I think that was probably the the biggest thing that I that uh, drove me towards it. So now, how did you? Now, I'm assuming the book was the God Saves the Fan book that Will wrote. Is that the one where he did this? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was God Bless or God Save the Fan. I believe. Yeah, because yeah, that, that, that had come out like right when I, I think it was my freshman or sophomore year, and that's kind of when that that idea had been kind of sticking in my head, but I didn't really 
you know, have the reason or that, or even really the time to go through it because, you know, going through college and stuff like that, it's, you know, you don't, you know, was I, it, was it I, Will that you brought yeah. this to or was AJ there by then? Uh, no, this was actually, it was right when, uh, Tommy had taken over <laughs> and it's funny, like the, um, how I got, how I gotten that started was I was a, I was a junior in college and I think I had just gotten back from a, you know, a party and I, and I was always like a huge fan of Tommy's work. And I emailed him like at you know two in the morning, and I let him know that I I really think he you know a good writer. And I I think I even mentioned that I was a little tipsy or something at that point. And he comes back and sit and like the next day, and he said like this this is the nicest you know email he's ever gotten. And like and after that, I kind of kept the conversation going with him through like you know um, you know emailing him every you know, couple you know a couple months or so. And when I let him know that I ended up you know getting an internship with the you know with the Onion, he kind of let me. Uh, he said, "Well, if you got, if you're going to be coming up here, you, you know, we'd love to have you do some stuff." And that's kind of when I pitched that, you know, pitched that to him, and he thought it was an awesome idea, and things kind of got rolling from there. Well, it seems like the one thing that you wanted to know most is: Does ESPN have an agenda through SportsCenter and through all the studies that you've done? Have you found that they do, or have you found that they don't? I think, I think they definitely do in, in some instances. I think. And some things that, you know, I think a lot of it is they're playing up to what people want, like, you know, or people are interested in. And I think that they're, you know, like the, um, you know, this, when I started doing it, it was the, like, you know, um, there was a lot of interest in, you know, whether the, you know, the Heat would end up winning the championship. So, I mean, it makes sense why they would, they would give a ton of coverage to the NBA and give a lot of coverage to the Heat. You know, they're kind of the most, they're the most intriguing, I guess, you know, story you know, that's going on right now in the NBA. So it makes sense that they're going to get a ton of preference. But yeah, but in, but with other things, you know, I think I think the thing that really proved that there was some, you know, you know, an agenda was the stuff, you know, with Tebow. I mean, um, you know, especially, uh, you know, they they did end up winning a playoff game, you know, that you know in January or so. But you know, there were the amount of coverage that was given to them in preference to other teams that you know won their playoff games or even, you know, um, I'm trying to think of, you know, just. Uh, There wasn't another player that had uh, that uh, that ESPN commissioned Marvel to draw a comic, you know, a comic book strip about him, and end up kind of doing like an animated, you know, segment with Chris Berman in the background, you know, doing his, you know, Chris Berman, you know, rooting, you know, that kind of deep voice that he that he does. I mean, right. like with highlights, with the highlights, Tim Tebow's like, you know, uh, whole season with, you know, complete with like, you know, Marvel character drawings. I mean, it's, I mean. Like it, it's a, an amazing, I guess, an, an amazing in quotation marks leverage of their of their branding because they had you know bought Marvel recently. But I mean, it's just it, like it's it's one of those things where you know they I think they really lost sight of what you know what the people in, you know that what their fans kind of you know the people that watch cared about. I mean, you know they um, they definitely and they I think they and I think they definitely realized that once the off season kind of went along, they def, there wasn't nearly as much team talk as after the kind of the beginning of you know, uh, after they got eliminated from the playoffs, you know, uh, from the playoffs. And then there was a little, like, there was a, a decent spike when he was taken, uh, you know, when he was picked up by the Jets. But, you know, I think they, the coverage, you know, the, I think the media coverage with people like Awful announcing and a couple, you know, I think, you know, stuff, I don't I don't want to say that I contributed directly, but I think those kind of, you know, the highlights of, ES, you know, of people kind of hammering ESPN for, you know, giving this guy so much, you know, publicity when he, you know, when there are other people that were probably more deserving, uh, I think that it definitely uh, they definitely got the message and kind of started to tone it down because as you saw in my the end of the year wrap up stats, I mean he was still among the top ten players mentioned, but 
you know, I, I know for most of the year he was about number two or three until kind of the end uh, when other when other names uh, kept getting mentioned more. So it was, it, it was. I think it was one of those things that they, you know, they finally started to tone it down. And I think like you know, I haven't watched much Sports Center this year. I think part of it's because I'm just so burned out on it. But I know that they. Bet. He has not been, from what I've seen of it, he's not been nearly as mentioned as much this year. You know, one thing that I've always kind of assumed, but obviously I've never done any kind of statistical analysis, is that SportsCenter tends to dedicate more time to the sports that ESPN dedicates the most money to. Oh, yeah. Is that mm-hmm. something that you've you've found? I mean, obviously, two point seven percent of a whole year on hockey being a sport that <laughs> they don't dedicate much time to or, or much resources, whereas, yeah. I, I'm a little surprised how low soccer is, but let's get into that more. But first, just do you agree with the original thesis? Yeah, I, I think I think the idea that they dedicate, you know, the things that they have they have stakes in, they re, they will really hammer home. I mean, I think it was one of those things where, um, you know, the the sports center after after Monday Night Football probably skews things a little bit because they treat it as a post game show slash, right. you know, sports center. But I mean, the fact that they you know, there were game, there were a couple games of just meaningless Monday night football games. They ended up spending thirty, thirty five minutes of a you know of a ninety minute presentation. I mean, in just you know games that were you know, between two below five hundred teams that weren't going to make the playoffs. I think one of them was a, I think it was the Panthers. You know, someone else. Uh, I can't remember who who it else was against, but they spent you know ten or fifteen minutes talking about Cam Newton and you know how what's he going to you know like what's he going to be doing for the rest of this year and next year and just stuff that was ultimately pretty you know meaningless in the, the grand, you know, the grand scheme of things NFL-wise. And then, you know, like, I, outside of, I think for, you know, hockey, outside of them sending uh, Barry Melrose and Steve Levy to the Stanley Cup Finals, just those two guys, you know, then they had a, a camera, basically, that would, like, they they would do their kind of, their show from, it looked like, you know, a press box or something like that um, at the um, at the arena. And there was, I think, no on-site coverage of, of any of hockey games that I ever saw, um, and there was no, you know, there was no panel of kind of there wasn't there was no hockey show or something like that. Well, they'll send, you know, for sometimes the NFL they'll send something to like their side studio and they'll do kind of a, a quick like four or five minute segment or kind of their their equivalent of a baseball tonight anymore. So it it pretty much became up to the the anchors. That's at least in my opinion, kind of. Um, of them kind of, uh, you know, putting hockey in near the end because, you know, there's actually a lot of people, there's a lot of anchors at ESPN that did care about hockey, like people like Linda Cohn, Steve Levy, John Butcher-Gross, um, you know, probably some others that I'm missing, but they're, they, it was always interesting kind of seeing at the end of the show, they would always try and like, you know, put in like a 30-second hockey, you know, right. hockey clip or something kind of did. that would, you know, beat the time filler, but that was basically it. Um it, it, when you just compare that to what they what they gave Monday Night Football, what they gave the NBA Finals, what they gave um, even you know uh, even stuff with Sunday Night Baseball, um, it, it was just it paled in comparison to what they gave in the hockey. And I think that it, it is definitely because of you know I, I you know it's probably pr- pretty cynical to think that, but I mean at the same time they're gonna I mean they spent you know billions of dollars for Monday Night Football. I mean there's no there. There's no reason then, I guess, you know, in their in their view of not, you know, dedicating coverage to it when they spent this much money, and it's a, I guess, it's a pretty sad way to go about things because you want Sports Center to be something that is news based, you know, based on what's the most important thing of the day. But I don't think that's how they operate anymore, sadly. You know, one one stat that kind of surprised me a little bit was 1.3 percent for soccer. I would have guessed it would have been a little bit higher. 
And another thing that mm-hmm. kind of surprised me was NASCAR being below the NHL. And I think that that's probably mm-hmm. a really bad sign for NASCAR because right now ESPN's a partner and they're not going to be in the future. And I would expect that that would mean NASCAR is going to get buried even below on this list. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, at least NASCAR, you know, they, uh, as I spoke, they, they at least have their own NASCAR show. Like, uh, and they also, and uh, they even have, you know, dedicated interviews, interviews where they have, you know, people like Marty Smith and a couple of other kind of rotating people there. But they, they were decent segments. I mean, like, the, I think one way of telling, you know, that, um, you know, something that NASCAR got, you know, even though they didn't get as much coverage, but something that NASCAR got that the NHL didn't get was when, um, yeah, after Brad Keselowski won the um, Daytona? the Sprint Cup, he actually or, uh, oh, he he came to Sports Center or he came to ESPN, the ESPN campus and did interviews basically all day. I mean, I I I, I do not think anything like that happened for uh, the, uh, the Kings when they won the Stanley Cup. I think they may have been there may have been a couple of ESPN interviews or something like that, but. Like and like the funny thing was they kind of made a big deal about you know their like you know Brad Kozlowski's day at ESPN they had like all these cameras and stuff following him for the entire day, um, but yeah like but yeah I think I think like you mentioned that you know, like the fact that ESPN is not going to be doing anything NASCAR wise anymore you know outside of maybe the day twelve five hundred you know I know it's not this isn't directly NASCAR related but anything like you know um, I guess well ESPN is still going to be doing the the IndyCar stuff so I w- I wouldn't be surprised if they start to uh, Pump that, pump that up a little bit more, but yeah, like, I, I don't think it's probably a very good thing for their future. Was there a stat that going into this you would have expected the least that turned up? Um, I, I think the thing that really shocked me the most was how, like, in the great, you know, in the grand scheme of things, given how how much of a talking sport it is, how little they kind of uh, they gave to college football. And I think a big part of that is because the off season compared to you know stuff with the NFL, it just isn't as interesting, or it, it's or maybe not as in, like that's probably not the best choice. But in terms of like, it's uh, it can be so like you know, I guess segregated in terms of you know, there's there's so many different you know teams to talk about, and they only really have time to kind of scratch the surface of any sort of college football preview. They're only going to get to, I mean, you're seeing it right now. They they talked about Alabama, they talked about A and M, they talked a little bit about. Texas and OU, and you know, they can be probably with Texas because they've got their own, you know, network with their right. ESPN. I guess that's a whole other kind of weird uh, sub dilemma kind of uh, story there. But um, you know, it's, it's probably I, I think you know, looking, uh, you know, thinking about it and how they would you know tackle covering that. I mean, just there's so many conferences, there's so many deals that ESPN has with those conferences. I mean, they've got something with the SEC, they got something with. The Big Twelve, they got they got something with the they did have something with the Big East or the American Athletic Conference uh, now, and the, and the ACC as well. It's this it's this thing where I, I don't I think they almost kind of in a way like they uh, it's I think it's one of those things where the, the fewer amount of teams in the professional leagues ends up helping them more, and the larger amount of teams ends up becoming a detriment. And it you know they still had they still covered big games they still had you know they were still a, a big presence of, col- of college football there but I would you know before the season would start I would have thought or this year started I would have thought that it would have been right on par with what um, you know the coverage they would give for you know baseball but you know right. they, that definitely dwarfed it and I guess the other thing was I was definitely surprised about how much they, they ended up doing for college basketball instead I, I think those numbers for the uh, for college football and uh, college basketball ended up being pretty close real close and, yeah. And it makes sense, I guess, given that you know, the, uh, because for a whole month basically, it, it it's the only thing going on. 
uh, you know, with you know, with uh, March Madness and the NCAA tournament and the, the conference tournaments and all those, you know, all those conference tournaments are on ESPN. Uh, so they, uh, or a lot of those, like the big conference tournaments, are on there. And even though that they don't do March Madness, it's still one of those things where it's so big that ESPN, it, there's no way ESPN can ignore it. Um, even uh, even though CBS has has it, they've locked up forever. Um, they like people are going to care about you know uh, what's going on in that tournament. People care about brackets and stuff. It almost becomes like more of a cultural thing too. Uh, and, and so there's no kind of way around you know promoting their own ESPN content over something else. There's it's because you know like I said in the mid, in the dead months of, of sports kind of um, you know because it's only spring training. You know the NFL is off. Uh, you know, uh, basketball still kind of you know the playoffs aren't, aren't going on for another month or so. So I. I think that those are two are I think were probably the the biggest surprises to me. You know what we really need is a Canadian U, someone who can do the same thing <laughs> for the TSN version of SportsCenter because I'd be so interested to see how the results were similar and different. Obviously, the biggest difference would be the hockey number would be huge at mm-hmm. TSN. You know, it would mm-hmm. I I would be b- willing to bet that TSN SportsCenter covers the NHL higher than the American version covers the NFL. But that's just a guess on my part. What? Yeah, I remember we did. I remember we did. Uh, another person did, uh, or, or I want to say actually, a, co- a Deadspin comment did. You know, some uh, did like a quick recap of something like that, and I think the biggest thing that like it was, I can't remember what the, the speci- like specifics were, but it was like the, the biggest story of the day was some, you know, kind of you know thing here, um, you know, thing here at, uh, in, in the U.S. or even at ESPN that would have been maybe relegated to. You know, an AP story on ESPN.com. Not even, not even so that they would have given a staff writer. Just you know, so they would have probably repurposed there. It was the, I think it, it may have been, it may have been something dealing with the lockout. I can't remember if that was, uh, but that was like the big thing for the day. It was the table for what they were going to be talking about, and it's just it's it's interesting you know, that I mean, even though like and hockey's huge, I mean. It's not like it's not huge of places, like New York, you know, and even like in the Northeast, like New York. I mean, there's it's definitely it's happening dry, and like the, the numbers have been getting better. You know, the ratings have been getting better. I don't think they're they come close to what they were. You know, pre uh, I guess the pre first lockout in 2004. But I mean, the, yeah, the, it, it is seeing numbers, and I think and it, it, I'm interested to kind of see you know. Um, if NBC, if the NBC Sports Network actually can, you know, make a, a like a footing, you know, uh, in terms of getting more viewers. I, I know they're going to be having more competition with Fox Sports. It's going to be. I, I'm really interested to see kind of how how that stuff plays out. I don't. I think there is an opportunity for someone to kind of take, you know, take over, you know, as a like, network wise in terms of you know having a good news show. I don't know if, um, but I mean, but at the same time, you know, sports center is still an institution. It's still kind of the thing that people will look at most in the morning and, and things like that. So, I, I, you know, on one hand, I think there is, there, there is like, you know, there is an opportunity to kind of, you know, get some sort of foothold, but it, it makes, yeah, I'm, I'm curious if, if, it, if it, you know, has the potential to, you know, take over or something that, you know, sports center, I, I doubt that's the case, but it, It'd be nice to kind of, or you know, see some sort of competition. You know, bring ESPN back to you know their kind of uh, their journalistic groups because I think when they when they do do news stuff, um, like when they do like they did breaking news stuff in terms of like with the whole Chupacabra, uh like once he when he passed away or when they kind of removed the statue and things like that, that their live news stuff is, is still fantastic. You know, when they're having to actually kind of you know when there's no script or anything like that, they're 
you know, and they're kind of having just to report the news. Like that was, uh, that was the stuff that I was always impressed with most, uh, kind of going off that, uh, at least in my opinion. Where do you want to go next with this? What else do you want to find out about Bristol from a statistical vantage point? I don't know. I'm, I'm definitely like, part of me, was, I was think, I was actually thinking about this this week. I was, I was uh, thinking like, how would, how would I do something like first take, but I don't know if my, if I, I, my mind can take it. Cause I think my, <laughs> I was already, I was already losing, I was already losing my sanity, but like my probably like August of last year doing sports center. And I don't think I can take more than about two weeks of skip Bayless. Cause I mean, he's from, uh, he's from Dallas. I've, I mean, I've, I've heard about, like, I mean, he's, become, like, he's been known to be kind of, you know, who he is for, for forever. So, I mean, I've, uh, I've already, you know, I've already hated him, or not hated the guy, but just you know found him basically insufferable on on ESPN or whatever or on whatever program he's been in for, for a long time now. I don't know if I can do that, but I think I think it'd be, it'd be interesting to kind of see how Morning Sports Center would compare. I don't know if I would have the if I had the you know the time now, but it's something I, I would definitely at least want to do for some, like, at least something to try out, you know, look at for a month or you know, a month. I think you know either doing that or you know kind of looking at another program in ESPN or I don't know like it's something I've, I've been thinking about but you know I I don't know if it's if it's worth just keeping it on film because I think there is a really good idea here of kind of figuring out you know breaking you know uh, you know putting kind of you know long held notions to the test about you know things with East Coast bias and things like that and kind of putting you know hard statistics with, um, with things like that. And, I think it could be interesting, and it's, I think it's something that can, you know, span across sports, even doing stuff with, you know, politics or, or you know, something on, you know, MSNBC or, you know, Fox News or something. I think there is there is a value of kind of, you know, getting an idea of what, you know, what words are said the most, or what, you know, what, you know, team or something like that is covered the most. It's a, I guess it's it, because it allows people. I think it allows people to get a good idea of, you know, is there you know, is there news? And even though this is like a sports news, so it's not the most important thing in the world. Are you getting, you know, full representation of what's actually going on in the sports world? And I think when you look at Sports Center, I think you can easily say that while they do something good, I think there's a lot of stuff where you're not getting the whole view of, you know, what's actually. All right. Well, you can find Pat on Twitter at Pat J Burns, and you can find his work on Bristol metrics at deadspin.com. I uh, really appreciate you telling us more about this. I was blown away by the work, loved it. I can't imagine spending 23,000 minutes watching SportsCenter, and I give you a whole lot of credit for doing this, and I think the results are, are excellent and fantastic. I hope you stick with it and do more. Thank you so much for telling us more about it. really appreciate the time. All right, I want to thank Adam Lazarus and Patrick Burns for being on the podcast today. Again, this is a two-episode week. We are going to have another podcast on Thursday or Friday, which will feature interviews with Stuart Mandel and Rich Eisen, the main man over at the NFL Network. Uh, don't forget you can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. You can also email us at sportscasters at gmail.com, and you can find all of our previous episodes at www.sports-casters.com. I wonder way back when, in the beginning of this, if we introduced ourselves. I bet Probably we not, no. Yeah, that's something we uh, hate to do. We hate it. Uh, one last thing is the last piece of business for today, and I wanted to tell you guys about the Sportscasters Night Out that Don and I had. And if you've never 
heard the show since we didn't introduce ourselves in the beginning, you're wondering who the hell <laughs> Don and I is. Uh, but no, uh, Don and I went down to this place called the Outer Harbor in downtown Buffalo, New York, which is literally the worst concert venue in the history of <laughs> Western New York concert venues. So if you know anything about Buffalo, you know that for some reason, years ago, people decided to build this thing which we call the Skyway, which is a really, really big, tall bridge that constantly has to be closed for wind. in the winter because of wind and Light snow. snow. <laughs> yeah, because you'd get blown off of it and die. And basically what it is is it takes you from downtown to the south towns, right? essentially. And... This concert venue is sort of under that, which means the only way really to get to it is to go over it. And then they close the exit on it that is closest to the venue. So you have to go way past the venue and then come all the way back down the venue towards the venue down this one lane highway, which gets real backed up. Yeah, I was going to say the venue itself is okay. Yeah, I mean, inside is sort of nice. Right. So, and then the parking was really bad, and the main parking lot was closed, so we had a parking lot where you had to literally take a bus over <laughs> to the venue, and the bus, instead of letting you out by where you get in, lets you out way past where you get in, so right. you have to walk back. So it's almost like these people sat down and said, well, what is the way that we can make each part of this concert the most aggravating? <laughs> and then they decided to do it that way, and then they did it. And we went to go see the Tragically Hip, who decided that since this is a rescheduled concert, based on uh, a rainout that they had where everyone there was soaked to the point that they basically went home crying. And also the band got so wet that they couldn't play the show that they had scheduled (laughs) the next night because all their equipment got ruined in the storm. They decided they would make sure that they waited as long as possible to come on the stage so that eventually during the show it would rain again. Right. Instead of taking advantage of the dry time, and hustling or doing whatever they could to get on at the scheduled 8.45 time, they'd make sure that they got on around 9.05, 9.10, so that it would go long enough for pouring rain to come down on everyone, uh, which eventually it did. Right. They also decided that they would not sing their songs for the most part. They would shout them. He and said he had a bug. He ate a bug. Uh, yeah, point. he ate a bug. Even though it was good it was- protein, apparently it was affecting his voice. And also they decided they would make sure to play every hit that would interest me the least. Right. It was, yeah. uh, Yeah. It was a bust. (laughs) It was pretty much a giant bust. I came home wet and tired and annoyed. We did get free tickets from somebody leaving the show before us. A flagging, flagging Molly fan. Flagging Molly fan. Yeah, so thanks to her. She gave us 10 bucks in tickets. Yeah. Which enabled us to get a couple hot dogs. Hot dogs and french fries, which were delicious. Sure. So there was that. We seen some of your buddies there. Yeah. They seem to be having a good time. They were. So I can't say a good time was had by all, but a good time was had by some, and a good time (laughs) was not had by the sportscasters. At least not me. Maybe you. I don't know. It was all right. It was better than sitting at home, I suppose. Uh, Probably the least favorite Tragically Hip show I've been to, but yeah. For sure. One last thing for this week. The The Sabres. We got more this week. Or for the show. Right. Tricky. Yep. Uh, the Buffalo Sabres have re-signed Corey Tropp. And Woo-hoo! Yeah, if you don't live in Buffalo, you don't know who Corey Tropp is, unless maybe you live in Rochester. But uh, Corey Tropp is kind of a role-playing third-line guy that had a, a promising, I don't know, remember if it was rookie year because of the way the NHL is funny about rookies. But anyway, they signed him to a one-year deal after a disappointing season last year where he got injured. 
uh, the interesting thing about this isn't that the Sabres signed Corey Trapp, but it's that while or after he was signed in an interview, he mentioned how terrible last season went for him with the injury, and he mentioned the words lockout. I forgot the NHL locked out last year, and that isn't good for the NHL. Uh, the NHL is my favorite sport other than football maybe, and if it wasn't for fantasy football, the NHL would probably be alone at the top of that ladder. That said, I think they played 48 games last year, and I didn't feel like we missed a ton of games. Uh, I love hockey, and I love the fact that during the season, every third night there's something to watch on TV uh, that isn't a reality show or something. I, I love that part of hockey. That said... And I know I'm also a big stats guy, so I'm not into changing up stuff too much. But, man, they probably could go down to 70 games and be a better league for it, as much as I hate to say it. Well, part of it was probably the fact that the schedule was compressed, that we still it seemed like yeah. we were watching Once hockey it started, all, the it was all the time. You know, so maybe that's part of it. But, no, not a good sign. But, you know, it's interesting. The NBA kind of went through this, right? They had their shortened season. And we were saying the same things. Didn't miss it. And I wonder how the NBA fans last season felt about going back to the full expanded schedule. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not sure, but. Hockey, knock it off. No more lockouts. Uh, consider shortening your season. And uh, we'll see you one more time this week.